Thanks. Today is the fourth and uh, final week in the four-week uh, November series we've had called Mayflower Misfits. And basically, uh, if you haven't been here, if you've missed some or all that, we've basically just been looking at those pilgrims on the Mayflower, a little bit about them, how they might have seen how Scripture touched them, you know, how it was originally given, how it touched them, and how it touches us today. And so we started off uh, looking at how they, they were just a, a congregation that kind of wanted to be left alone. They just didn't want to be in with the Church of England. But for them to worship freely on their own was not something that was actually allowed. And they began to experience persecution. Uh, then they moved to Holland, first to Amsterdam, but quickly they left for another city, uh, the city of Leiden, which was the second uh, biggest city there in, in Holland. And they stayed there for 11, almost 12 years. But they were, while they had their religious freedom, they had a lot of other problems providing for themselves and maintaining uh, their beliefs and their culture. And they said, not only do we need religious freedom, but we need a, a place where there's also freedom to work hard and make a good living and, and to live the way we want to. And so we come today to kind of the final step of that journey. Uh, where they actually uh, leave and cross over and, and come to America. And uh, I mentioned to you before that for some of the, the history parts of things, lots of you won't care about that much at all. I've kind of summarized it and, and dumbed it down, so to speak, um, if I'm smart enough to dumb it down. I'm not sure of that, but I, uh, I got a lot of it out of this book, and I'll leave it up here. If anybody's just, if you're really a history buff, this is a great uh, book called The First Thanksgiving. Uh, this guy, Robert Tracy McKenzie, he's uh, chair of the Department of History at Wheaton College, got a Ph.D. from Vanderbilt, and uh, his previous writings were on the Civil War, that kind of history. But anyway, uh, got a lot of stuff from him, and we'll leave that up here if anybody wants to, to look at it later on. I want to invite you now to please stand as we read our scripture for this morning, Exodus 23:16. Would you stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word? Celebrate the, harvest, the festival of harvest with the first fruit to the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we just thank you for your word. We thank you how, for how your character is revealed uh, throughout the ages and how scriptures, uh, we, we see you at work. We see your movement among uh, ancient peoples, and, and we're reminded of how you move and work among us even today. Lord, we pray now that you would take uh, these ancient words of Scripture and, and the still ancient but more recent history of the pilgrims and bring them together in our lives to help us um, to understand how we can faithfully live out our faith for you. And God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we begin with a scripture, a single scripture, single verse from the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 16, where there is a command here uh, to the uh, Jewish people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and it's part of a larger section where, where uh, God actually commands them to partake of three different uh, feasts or festivals. 
Um, but I just chose this one verse because it has two of those festivals or feasts or celebrations uh, all in one. And, and basically here there's, there's two festivals or two celebrations that are commanded. The first one is called the, the Festival of Harvest, which is also known as the Festival of Weeks or of Pentecost. So if you, you know, in the book of Acts, Pentecost, that was this celebration. And this celebration, um, it came after, uh, 50 days after um, the earlier celebration of the Passover or approximately around that time. And then there was another um, festival that was the festival of ingathering, and it's um, also called the festival of tabernacles. Now, here's why these were called this. The festival of harvest, um, that was the the first harvest that came in, the crops were planted, and he talks about the first fruits. That is the very first, you know, when you plant something, you just can't wait for those first, that first taste, whether it's a, a watermelon, you know, it might not be the best watermelon you get all summer, but that first one, you're looking forward to it, or, or those ripe tomatoes, you just can't wait. You see them as they grow, and they're green, and they turn, and you can't wait to get that first one. Well, that's the first fruits, and God said, okay, I want you to have a celebration. I want you to have a festival with the very first fruits that you bring in. You celebrate what I've done, how I've blessed you, how your work has been blessed. Celebrate when you bring that first crop in. So they celebrated at the very beginning of the in-bringing season. And then they had this second festival, uh, the festival of in-gathering. That's bringing the final harvest in. And they call it the Festival of Tabernacles. Tabernacle was just a fancy name for tent. You know, just like before they built the permanent uh, uh, temple, the, the, the holy place as the Israelites traveled was a tabernacle. That was basically, it was one big tent, a big portable church, you might say. Well, the Festival of Tabernacles, it was like a camp out, basically. To, to uh, have this celebration... They would all go, and some of you might think of, a, of a, a county fair or something where you stay in cabins or, you, you know, this is our camping trip or whatever. But they all went and they set up these tents and they had this big festival, this big celebration uh, to celebrate the final harvest that all throughout the harvest God had blessed them and they had taken in and stored up enough food to, to provide through the winter until the next uh, growing season. So... Here we have uh, two out of the three, in this one verse, two out of the three uh, festivals or celebrations that God commanded. Now, I'm kind of skimming over the major thing here, and that is God commanded. God did not simply allow the people of Israel and say, I don't really like, you know, I'm God. I don't really like celebrations or partying too much, but I'll allow it. No, God didn't say that. God, in fact, not only allowed his people to celebrate, to enjoy life, he actually commanded it. He said, I want you to be a people that is full of life, full of thankfulness, full of celebrating and enjoying life. And, and, and you know, they could have as many other celebrations as they wanted to. And they did, in fact, add other celebrations later on. You've heard of Hanukkah. It wasn't one of these three. But these three, God said, I'm setting down to begin with, you guys must celebrate life. You must celebrate the blessings that I have given you. And so it's very interesting because lots of times people think of, well, God is, especially back in those Old Testament days, he was just so, so somber. And we, we think of the Old Testament people 
But, you know, they talk about, they would look at us, I think, a lot of times and think, we're very somber. I mean, David danced before the Lord. All throughout the Psalms and the Scriptures, they talk about clanging cymbals and, 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 and instruments and raising hands. They were very animated. They knew how to worship God and how, how to celebrate Him, uh, probably better than a lot of us do, but yet somehow we think they didn't know how to celebrate. But they understood it. So what does this have to do with the pilgrims? As we left them last time, they were still in Holland, and, and, and they were trying to, you know, they, they had life there. They had grown. The church was going well. They had grown from a little more than 100 to 400 people as other separatists, that is those people who said we can't be part of the Church of England anymore. Other separatists came and joined them, but they said we've got to leave here. The environment is just not good for us and what we're trying to do. And so, as I mentioned earlier, one historian said they had an extraordinary talent for getting duped, okay? Just like they got duped when they had a, a, a ship to try to get them to Holland in the first place, they had some people kind of do them dirty, do them wrong. And there were eventually, there were supposed to be two ships that were to leave. Everybody knows about the Mayflower, but there was another one called the Speedwell. Uh, but the Speedwell, most folks think the captain didn't really want to go on the ship, and he intentionally sabotaged it and made it take on water, and so they had to go back. So there were supposed to be two ships that left for the Americas. Now, they were not exactly sure where in the Americas they wanted to be. In fact, there was a very strong consideration at first for them to go to the Spanish-controlled South America now, that would have been a very different Thanksgiving celebration. I mean, we'd have to really adjust our mental image if the pilgrims had gone to South America. And also, Holland had offered them, hey, you can go colonize for us. But they turned that down also. And they ended up signing an agreement with the Virginia Company that was basically a business. And they, they had their religious reasons. The, the Virginia Company had, had their own reasons. And so they ended up, long story short, making this journey over on the Mayflower. And on that journey were the, what we really think of the pilgrims, those who were part of that church, but then they were the, the pilgrims or the separatists. And the other folks who weren't part of their group, uh, they called them the strangers. Now, that was very Christian of them, right? <laughs> you guys are the strangers. Uh, we're the separatists. But anyway, eventually those folks learned to get along and, and work well together. Um, but they all came over, and only two people died on the voyage over. But unfortunately, as they were going up and down the coast and trying to find a good place to, to, to live and to settle in, several more died, and they had a really rough time, even if after they found a good place. They did find a good spot, and they're like, this is amazing. Like, all this land, it's already been cleared, it's ready to go, and and, 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 and yeah, it's like almost like God just left it here for us. And what they didn't know was that the Indian tribe who had been there had been completely wiped out by disease. And so all of their stuff was gone and all this cleared land that was ready for them uh, to, to, to plant and to harvest and to do everything. Um, it was there for, for the taking because no one lived there anymore. So they made it through that first year. Uh, lots of people died. Uh, they say there was, uh, there was some single people on the trip. There were children on the trip. There were 18 married couples. And of those 18 married couples, only four ended up, the, both the husband and the wife, 
lived through that first year. So there was a lot of devastation. There was a lot of, a lot of children died as well. Uh, really, really tough time. But they made it through. And most of us know the, the, the story about Squanto. Uh, he, was, he was an Indian who, or a Native American who basically had taken that, um, he had been one of those people where it was, the whole tribe was wiped out. He was actually taken as a slave by some traders, and he had gone to Spain and then to England, and he made it back, and he found out, hey, nobody was, nobody, none of my people are even alive anymore. But he learned how to speak English, and he was able to serve as a translator. And he actually, as we know, he taught the pilgrims uh, how to plant corn and how to, how to find the eels in the river. And basically, they would not have made it were it not for his help. And so as they made it through that first year, they ended up having a feast. Now, let me, uh, let me read for, for you just a very short, short paragraph, really. This is, um, <clears throat> this is what we have that is actual historical record of that first Thanksgiving. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, fowling like fowl birds, that we might, uh, ha- after a more special manner, rejoice after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They killed in, d- in one day as many fowl as, with a little help, served the company for almost a week. At which time, amongst other reactions, we exercised our arms, that is, shooting competitions, and many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men, for whom three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, uh, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and the others. Now, that is the sum total of actual historical record that we have about the first Thanksgiving. Everything else that we envision and we imagine going along with it, it's all kind of historical fiction. A lot of it got made up in the 1800s and such. A lot of elaboration, a lot of imagination going on. But I want to note, I want everyone to note, no cranberry sauce, okay? You you didn't hear those words cranberry anywhere in there, okay? But uh, now we can, a lot of us can agree that's a good thing. But, you know, there's not even the word turkey in there. Did you know it's just foul, and we do know from, from their writings that turkey were abundant, but they also said that they were really hard to catch, these wild turkey. But they said it was really easy to get, to get uh, geese and, and swan and ducks, all the bunch of waterfowl. So we don't know if they had turkey or if they had geese or they had a turducken. We don't know what they had. It doesn't exactly say. But, um, you know, and, and we know that there was venison there. So this is very interesting if someone's I'm not saying you should get in an argument with your mother-in-law about this next Thanksgiving, but, uh, you know, if, if someone's trying to force turkey down you and you just don't like it, you're just like, well, I'm not sure that the original, you know, you can go for venison instead and be sure that they ate that. But, um, you know, they were, they were a different sort of people. We kind of imagine them to be just like us, and, except for they wore funny clothes, which that's another thing. You don't hear that in there. And we actually have some historical proof that they owned clothes with color. Can you believe that? They didn't all, always wear black and white all the time. Um, but they did so many things. They had a lot of the beliefs like us. They believed in God's, in God's word. But there was a lot of things they did differently. 
When they sat down for meals, they did two prayers. Now, this is interesting, and it's actually kind of logical if you think about it. They sat down before the meal, and they asked God to bless it. And then after the meal, they thank God for the meal. Now, isn't that kind of interesting that we're going to, God, please bless it. And at the end, if it was pretty good, okay, God, thank you for this food. Um, so, you know, they might have left off that second prayer sometimes if things didn't turn out so good. I, I don't know. But um, they were different than us. You know, the, the early pilgrims, the separatists, the Puritans, they have, they have a reputation of being very uptight, stodgy type of people who didn't know how to smile or laugh or celebrate. And believe me, if you research enough, there's some stuff that they did where they were kind of stiff and stodgy. And uh, there was definitely some things that gave them that reputation. But they knew how to celebrate. They knew how to say, hey, something amazing has happened here. Um, and they celebrated the, the, them and, and along with the, the Native Americans that were in that area. Now, it's interesting, as the author of that book points out, the writing doesn't exactly say that Massasoit and his 90 men were invited. It just said they came among us. So this might have been if you've ever planned a meal and somebody extra just showed up for Thanksgiving or Christmas, they kind of... You know, kind of could have been that way, but hey, they went out and killed five deer. So, you know, as long as you bring your own stuff to the, the party, it's okay. But they were able to sit down, uh, probably not on tables and chairs. They wouldn't have had much of those. And, and by, back then, forks were only a thing for like royalty. So they would have thought, unless you're some weird show off, you wouldn't have a fork. So they sat down, not at tables and chairs, but probably on the ground, outdoors, and with their hands, they started enjoying this first Thanksgiving feast. So before you get onto those little ones at Thanksgiving, you can say they were being authentic in the way they eat. But um, they knew how to celebrate, at least in this way. Like I said, there was lots of other ways in which some of those early pilgrims and uh, Puritans were really stodgy, were really stiff, but they understood that besides all of the death and, and all of the going hungry and, and all of the things that didn't work out, they were still blessed. They had made it through, they had survived, they had gotten to this point, and even with all that bad stuff, they were able to say, hey, we've been blessed and, and we need to give thanks. We need to celebrate the good that has come and this harvest that's come in. So what does this have to do with us? I entitled this service, Pilgrims Who Party, to help us get over that, that thinking that they were such dull people. But what about us modern-day Christians? Well, I think we go back to the Bible, and we see what Jesus did. And look at his very first miracle. It was at a wedding, and he turned the water into wine. And all throughout Jesus' miracle, you see him attending social gatherings. You, you see him uh, going to, to, to eat and, and going to socialize and to be with people. And sometimes they were the high, often they were the very lowest of low. It didn't matter to him. He wasn't afraid to be associated with different sorts of people. And in fact, he was uh, given, he was called names. Uh, you, you eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. You're a friend of sinners. Or some say, oh, you're a drunkard and a glutton. You know, they 
people always exaggerate. The Bible says, uh, Jesus, in fact, mentioned, hey, John the Baptist came, and, and he didn't really eat or drink. And they all, oh, you're, you're a weirdo with a demon inside you. You don't even know how to, to have fun. And then Jesus said, I come eating and drinking, and so then you call me a drunkard or, or a glutton. You know, folks, if you live your life worried about what everybody else thinks about you or what they might call you, you'll never enjoy life. You'll never please everyone. But Jesus wasn't afraid of people looking at him, and, and they could make up what they wanted. He knew who he was. I love the story of uh, Matthew, or uh, as he's also known, Levi. But if you look in Luke chapter 5 or in Matthew chapter 9, you, story, you, look at, you find this story of this man named Matthew, also known as Levi. And he was a tax collector. And uh, we all know from if you've been in church long enough, oh, back in the day, tax collectors were bad. You know, they were on the, the no-no list. But Jesus looked at him one day and said, come, follow me. And the Bible says he responded to that call. He did follow and the very next thing that he did was through a party, through a banquet, and Jesus was the guest of honor. And all of these people came around, and, and they were all showing up. All these people who were on the edges and the fringes of society, the people who really other people thought, and maybe they themselves thought we're not good enough to, to be in with God. Jesus actually he communed with them. He talked with them. He, he loved on them. And, and then, of course, the scoffers, those Pharisees and Sadducees, came along and said, who are these people, these sinners? And that's when Jesus said, hey, a physician does not come for the healthy but for the sick. I've come not for the righteous. And I can almost see him put righteous in quotes as, as they thought they were very righteous. I've not come for the righteous, but I've come for the sinners. I've come for people who are humble enough to admit that they are broken, they are sinful, and they need a touch from me. Those are the ones that I've come through, come for. And so we see Jesus as this um, always being involved in celebrations and, and, and such banquets and such. And in fact, we even see as we look toward heaven, you know what? Heaven is described as in often described in terms of a banquet or a feast or rejoicing or celebration. All these words used about heaven. And I tell you, I think some Christians are going to have a hard time. You know, they're going to get to heaven. They're going, well, these people are noisy. Can I have a quiet corner of heaven, Jesus? I don't, I don't like these folks that sing and, and praise and enjoy life. And some of us are going to have to get ready for heaven. You know, we're going to have to branch out just a little bit. Now, some of you are aware that um, <clears throat> there was some kind of, I don't know, little college activity in Oxford Thursday night. And um, this, this activity, you know, happened to be a, a little football game called the Egg Bowl. And uh, it, it ended up getting a lot of, of press, right? And uh, not even so, you know, the score, that was interesting. But really beyond just the score of it, two things got a lot of press. Number one, the fight, okay? So we have this big brawl that breaks out, and coaches are trying to celebrate. I mean, separate. Uh, I'm really stuck on celebrating, aren't I? They were trying to separate them, and they were trying to, you know, stop it and everything. So that was one of the big things. But the other thing that went viral happened to be with the band, okay? So, so the famous Maroon band, um, they had decided that they were going to play this song. And so it kind of has to do with Ole Miss and their, I, I'm not sure, I think Ole Miss in the last 
five years has had approximately 42 different names or something like that. I mean, there's a bunch of different names, but the latest one is Landshark. And so, and so they, um, they said, we're going to have fun with this. And they played the little children's song, Baby Shark, do, 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 do. And, and so they played this, and it got huge attention. Uh, I think there's over a million views on YouTube or Instagram or whatever. And uh, I think uh, the SEC Network called the famous Maroon Band the most savage college band in the land because they played that. And um, now, <clears throat> why do I bring that up? Is it just to rub it in on you Ole Miss folks? No, that is just a side benefit, okay? But <laughs> no, seriously. Here, here, here's the thing about that. I knew about this about, I don't know, a week ago or a long time. So like Caleb had told me, he said, you know, he and his friend Ben play in the band and he's like, dad, you can't tell anybody, but it's a secret, but we're going to be playing baby shark at that game. And I want to tell you all week long. So I'm sworn to secrecy. He tells me, but I cannot tell anybody. And so all week long, man, I just kept, I wanted to text Alan and say, Alan, yeah, Luke was coming. You know, I, and I wanted to go talk to Charlie or, or different people. It's like, hey, you guys better be listening to the band. But I'm like, I can't give it away. I've got to keep this a secret. And do you know how hard it is to keep a secret? When you have some, something that's good and juicy and you want to share it, but you're like, no, I promised that I would not share that. It was so hard, and I couldn't wait until it actually happened and then Oh, that was great. But that time before was so tough. What does, that, what does that have to do with us as Christians? It has to do with the fact that if we've got good news, if we've got something that we want to tell, it is so hard. It is almost impossible not to tell. It kind of wells up inside us, and, and we want to just talk about it, right? You know, that's what the early Christians did they didn't have a five-point outline and plan for, okay, let me, let me have a letter and a good acronym and a good plan for how to tell about Jesus. They simply lived their lives rejoicing over what God had done and just kind of out of the overflow. Just like Matthew said, hey, all of my friends, you don't know Jesus, but you need to get to meet Jesus. And he threw parties and he celebrated for Jesus. And here's what I want to say to you today. Most of the time, if you come to church, if you hear anything about partying, it's don't party. Or, you know, we know the, the kinds of parties that we shouldn't do. And we all certainly know that we should not uh, destroy our bodies with things that are harmful. And, and we should not put ourselves in a state where we're going to do dumb stuff and we're going to do irresponsible stuff. But see, that stuff ends up being not fun in the long run anyway. Because the consequences uh, are not so good for you. But the idea that Christians, that many people have, and even Christians themselves think of, you know, I like to celebrate, but hey, I'm a good Christian. We got it so wrong. We see that all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New God not only allowed his people to celebrate, it is his desire for us to celebrate both in this life and he says in the life to come, there's going to be amazing rejoicing and celebration. And so this morning, I want us to take from the example of the pilgrims that it's not just okay to celebrate as a Christian, 
It's part of your job to celebrate. And what do you think would be the rate of growth of Christianity? If people stopped looking at Christians as, oh, they're the people who are killjoys. They're the people who are against this and against that. And and they're always bad-mouthing other people. And instead they said, wow, those Christian people, they're fun. I like to be around them. They know how to celebrate. They know how to rejoice. And that is exactly what God would have us to do. People who understand how blessed we are, and we don't just hold on to that knowledge inside, but because we're so blessed, we celebrate. And the watching world sees and experiences celebration of God's goodness in our lives, and it draws them not to us, but to the God who is worthy of celebration in the very first place. Would you bow with me this morning? Heavenly Father, God, I come to you, and um, God, I just thank you that you are not bound by our stereotypes and our preconceived notions of who you are, because we get it wrong. We mess it up all the time. God, you are the, you are the God who rejoices who has your angels celebrating in the presence of one sinner who repents. You are the God who delights in us. You are the God who chases us, runs to us, loves us with an everlasting love. And you are the God who created us with an ability to experience sorrow and pain, but also an ability to experience joy, to experience happiness, to celebrate your goodness. And God, I pray that, that we would understand we're, we're a world away in, in culture, in dress, in so many different things from the people of the Old Testament and from the pilgrims. But we are still the same in that we need to recognize your goodness and we need to celebrate it. That we might enjoy our lives and that others may be blessed and that your name might be glorified as we do so. Help us to be a people who celebrate. A people who thanksgiving is not simply an annual event, but a daily reality in our lives. God, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.